This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with Hugh Oliver and Andy Lloyd Evans. So Hugh and Andy are outdoor educators based in Scotland, and the couple has raced and bikepacked all over the planet, and recently completed a winter bike expedition above the Arctic Circle in Sweden. Thanks for joining us, Hugh and Annie. Hi, no worries. Yeah, nice to talk to you. So I'm fascinated with your job title. I read somewhere that, that you two are outdoor educators. So what exactly is it that you do, and how did you get started in that position? Um, so outdoor education, it's basically outdoor instructing, but rather than just focusing on teaching somebody like how to go climbing or how to kayak, um, we're also teaching them about, I suppose, the outdoor environment, trying to get them really excited about, well, the being outdoors and looking after the environment, but also learning about themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll use, say, an abseil as a challenge that can be overcome to try and build a bit of confidence and self-esteem in them. And yeah, we got started um, after uni. We, or I did, um, like a year's apprenticeship. Um, so I worked in an outdoor centre, outdoor education centre. Okay. And um, yeah, I got my qualifications through that and so how it all worked. Cool. Well, how, how does the learning structure do people go out is it like something that you do every weekend for several weeks or is it like you take a week-long trip how are the classes sort of structured for people so yeah I work in outdoor education too but I kind of drifted into it um I used to do kind of more hard skills based things so working with adults and guiding or coaching and then saw what Annie was doing and drifted towards the outdoor education side just because it's it's far more rewarding I think and from kind of chatting to friends who live in the States, I think outdoor education is really varied in the States, whereas in the UK it's maybe a little bit more along similar lines most of the time. So the the place that we work most of the time, um, it's it's in the kind of Western Highlands and kids from schools, mainly in Edinburgh, will come come stay in this, um, it's like an old castle, it's like an old country house wow, cool. uh, in, the mid, in the middle of a botanic garden. It's a really, really lovely place. Um, and they'll come stay for a week, so part of their challenge is just living away from home for a week you know, even before you get to the activities and just eating new foods and living with new people. Hmm. Um, and they have a week and we might start off pretty mellow. So like their first thing is, can you find your bedroom? <laughs> um, and you build on to build on to other stuff as you go. So it's as much about doing um, set activities through the week. It's, it's just as much about building a team among them as well and trying to transfer over some responsibility yeah. um, over the course yeah. of the week. So yeah, it's only four days that we normally see kids for. And sometimes it's kind of a... Um, you know, they say, oh, yeah, I've done climbing and abseiling before if they've maybe come from a background with more opportunities. And sometimes they're kids that have never really been taken to do anything outside and they've never, no one's ever you know, told them how to, I don't know, make a bed. I mean, it <laughs> sounds quite extreme, but every now and then, you, yeah, you meet kids where you you really think that they've, they've learned a lot from the four days and it's not necessarily just now I've been climbing. There's, there's a lot of other stuff too, you get to know them. So it's yeah, it's it's rewarding work. I think when it's when it's good, when it's good, it's really yeah. Good. That's really interesting. What age are these kids generally that you're teaching? Ah, uh, kind of ten to twelve. Okay, 
So okay. they're yeah, they're a cool age. They're just old enough <laughs> to be kind of too cool for school, but they're they're young enough that you yeah, you sort of see them just acting like kids as well, which is nice. Yeah. Well and and how do they come into this? I mean, is this something they get credit for at school? Um, like why are these kids or their parents choosing to send them to this kind of education? Um, so it's actually part of the curriculum here in Scotland. They have to do some sort of outdoor learning, outdoor education. Um, and so we, um, yeah, we're part of the education system, I suppose, which is really nice. Yeah, that's really different. I mean, we, we don't have anything like that in the U.S. And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this podcast living in the U.S. probably are thinking that would be a pretty cool thing to have. Yeah, I think it's an amazing thing. And it's so important because... You know, if we're trying to think about protecting the land and national parks, you only have that if you have people who appreciate that and understand the value in it. Yeah. And so getting the kids out of the cities and showing them how important it is and the benefits of it, hopefully they're going to remember that as they get older and look after it. Yeah, that's really cool. So you guys have done all kinds of adventures on your own outside of the outdoor education. And we're going to talk about some of those expeditions, particularly your recent one to the Arctic Circle bikepacking. Um, But when you're planning an expedition, how do you balance the potential for type one and type two fun? Like, are you looking for something that's going to be really challenging? Or are you looking for great scenery? or, Or what is it that draws you to a trip like this this trip to the arctic circle yeah we're, we're definitely we definitely seem to have a knack for um finding the type two fun but it's not <laughs> i wouldn't have said it's something we go looking for as such it's definitely what draws us to like there'll always be an idea there's just something that catches your eye like maybe you'll just read something about a place uh, maybe i think definitely before we've just seen a photo somewhere it could be in a magazine or it could be on a blog or anything and you're just like where is that? I need to know where that is. And that just starts you kind of down that path mm-hmm. and you think, oh, it's there. Okay. Let me find out more about that place. And then, yeah, oh, okay. We need to go there. And then it turns from like, where is it into how do we get there? And, oh, could we go there? And it just sort of snowballs from there. There's always just one, one little idea that gets you started. Yeah. And then once you go down that path, you sort of decide whether or not you accept the, the challenges that are going to come along the way. Cause there'll always be some or lots, depending on what you decided to do. But I think definitely, yeah, there'll just be something kind of snags on your imagination. And if you run with that and let it go, then maybe you'll come across something that makes you think, okay, right, we can't do that. But if you decide you can, then that kind of overrides the other stuff, I suppose. It's not like, oh, can we do it? And will it all be plain sailing? It's like, "Mm, but can we do it? And is it, do we think it's worth it? Yeah. Well, what if you, I mean, what if you saw a picture of Hawaii would you would you want to do that or would that be too easy for you? Well, I started out actually as a scuba diving instructor. And uh, so Hawaii would have been pretty high up my list. <laughs> right. Um, but I think now we're sort of more drawn to, tend to be more northern landscapes, but very unpopulated. And I suppose, yeah, places where there is more things in terms of the weather. Yeah. Um, that we think about and maybe... Yeah, Hawaii, maybe we wouldn't be that excited about at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, even but even these northern places, you know, did you consider doing them in the summer? I mean, I know this this Lapland trip was very specific because of the way that the trails sort of appear and disappear in the winter season. But yeah, why not do it? Why not do it in the summertime? Uh, There's definitely something about winter. I think I think if you live in Britain, then you either look south or you look north 
And I guess lots of people look south because, you know, if you go a little bit further south than Britain, then you get places that are actually sunny and warm. Mm -hmm. But if you go a little bit further north and you get to places that actually have a proper winter, because winter, I mean, it's the middle of January here and looking out the window, it's kind of grey and it's kind of, it's quite a fair bit above freezing and it's just sort of grey and brown and muddy. We don't, we don't really have that kind of really beautiful, perfect winter. But every now and then we get like a week of it. And just the whole week you spend with your eyes wide open kind of thinking, oh, well, I wish I could, you know, I wish I could spend more time in this. So definitely, I think we've we've both been really drawn to winter as that kind of, um, not the challenge of, of conquering winter or anything sort of macho like that, but just could we learn the skills to just get by and just exist mm-hmm. and, um, and kind of just be comfortable in winter? Yeah. It's definitely, yeah. I think I've definitely heard that idea said before by... You know, there's that kind of British tradition of polar exploration, which right. it, it is quite strong and you wonder why on earth it should be. But I think it's because, yeah, you either you get drawn one way or the other away from sort of grey mud and it's it's either to the sun or it's to the cold. And yeah, we definitely, I think, both feel the, the kind of draw towards the cold. Yeah, I can kind of identify with that as well. Living in the southeast of the United States, we don't get a lot of snow either. And I know, you know, ever since I've been a kid, if it snows, it's like, you go outside and it's just, it's just magical. Like it's, yeah, it's exciting and it's so different. And so, yeah, I can, I can see that. So have you guys ever been in any dangerous situations in terms of survival while you've been out bikepacking or on one of your various adventures? We definitely ask ourselves a lot, you know, is this safe? What do we need to do to be safe? I think especially because of being instructors. So because of our job, there'd be it almost feels like it'd be an extra level of embarrassment if you had to get rescued. And I guess we, we're we aware, we're not in rescue teams, but we have a lot of friends who are in rescue teams and we're kind of aware of the the realities of rescues happening and how much effort it takes. And uh, yeah, overall, we're just pretty keen not to put ourselves in a situation like that. Like we, we do a lot of kind of what's the worst case scenario. I think we always plan for the worst and hope for the best mm-hmm. kind of thing. Ah, there's always things that you that seem pretty scary at the time, but... I can't think looking back if there's anything that's been too savage. Yeah, I mean, it's all relative, I'm sure. A lot of people might think we put ourselves in dangerous situations. But as he said, it's all about your decision making at the time and the choices. And we tend to, as a, yeah, as a pair, we're very uh, conservative, I suppose. We don't rush into things. So when we're in the Greenland over the summer and um, we were going to paddle this big glacial river, and we'd done loads of research beforehand and we got there and we found it was a lot more powerful and quite different to what we expected. And um, we were sort of like, oh, you know, maybe this isn't safe for us. And we did put on and give it a try. And hmm. we we very quickly realised that it wasn't a good idea and actually we needed to change our plan. So, yeah, I guess you could have said that whilst we were on that river, that was a dangerous situation. But, um, yeah, we decided to to get off and do something different instead so yeah sorry i wish i wish we had some kind of gnarly gnarly danger story but i think yeah i'm not sure we've actually got anything like yeah well i mean i guess a lot of the stuff though that you experienced just reading through your story about lapland that a lot of that stuff would seem dangerous to me i guess um and i would feel like nervous that I'm in a survival situation or that I'm very close to being in one if I don't make the right decisions. But clearly you guys have a lot of knowledge. You have a lot of confidence as well. And so, like you said, it's 
maybe part of it is kind of mental. It's like, you know where danger lies and, and you're able to sort of stay away from that and, and pull yourself out when you know that you're getting close to that line. I guess coming back to your question earlier, I think that's part of the draw is, is I think we saw, we saw that kind of winter environment as dangerous too, or we were nervous about it. And then we looked at other people and said, well, hang on, like loads of people live in Lapland and they don't see it as dangerous. So what do they know that we don't and how do we go and learn it? Yeah, that was definitely a draw. I think is wanting to, wanting to take something that we're kind of taught is dangerous and then see it more objectively, maybe give it a fair chance. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I want to, I want to dive into that. Your trip to the Arctic last year did involve some really extreme weather conditions, you know, it was sub-zero temperatures, you had shifting trails and a lot of snow. So how do you prepare for a cold weather expedition like that, especially coming from uh, where you are, where you don't really have those conditions? <laughs> yeah, we'd crossed Iceland in the spring before in the snow, so we'd had a little bit of experience. But yeah, I mean, in Scotland, like minus five is really cold. So going to somewhere where we might get minus 20 is, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a step. Yeah. So uh, I guess a lot of reading, just finding out what people do who either live in that kind of environment or who maybe go places like that more often, working out what equipment we need to use and how we would use it. Uh, then when we first got to Lapland, rather than just setting straight out on our main sort of expedition that we wanted to do, we went out for a short one for a few nights just to check ah. that we could actually use our kit and things did work the way we thought. And yeah, I mean, it's hard. It's quite a steep learning curve getting used to, <laughs> used to the cold and having to do everything with gloves on. Yeah. Can you train your body? I mean, can you like prepare yourself for cold? I guess it's just allowing yourself time to adapt and being not rushing straight into having huge expectations. You sort of be a bit gentle on yourself and, and it's those first few nights were really, really hard. Mm. And definitely we must have adapted because it certainly didn't feel as bad throughout the whole trip. And then coming back to Scotland, it just felt like we'd come back to the tropics. <laughs> so... Yeah, your body does adapt to it. That's really interesting. So what what were your bike setups like? Uh, they were, yeah, they were similar but different. So we were both riding Salsa fat bikes. Annie was riding one with kind of a narrower tire setup. So like on the narrow end for a fat bike, um, kind of four inch tires. So both 26 inch wheels and Annie had four inch tires on a fairly wide rim. And I had five inch tires on a really, really wide rim, kind of the widest setup you could go and it was interesting how similarly they perform they're not it wasn't like um my bike was miles better than annie's like it's got a lot more flotation but it's also way heavier right so they both they both did really really well like we'd used them in iceland before i knew them pretty well and um so that was simple enough and then um the sort of the bike packings so we use soft bike packing bags on on the bikes um you know like a big dry bag on the handlebars to keep all your sleep kit so same as we would in summer just bigger for the bigger pieces of gear and then you know frame bag same as normal with kind of heavy stuff like food and tools and then on the back we had a rack actually um or i had a rack with some kind of um really small panniers that that revelate designs make um so they're really really good and it was all gear that we're like you know we've used it before in lots of places we know we know that it's going to be fine we know that things aren't going to break um, so it's it's really reliable and pretty well-traveled stuff. But um, yeah, the only real difference was the sort of amount of storage we needed, mainly for like that big sleeping bag and big down jacket. Um, mm -hmm. 
so yeah, it was pretty. It was familiar anyway. I guess it, there was nothing crazy on there. Um, and then yeah. pogies on there, pogies on the handlebars, so kind of handlebar mitts. They're really, really good because you can fill them up with sweets as well. So you've always got your hands near some sweets. Ah, nice. How heavy were the bikes? Did you weigh them? Oh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I don't even want to think about it. I think we had um, we had ten days of food on there when we set out for the longer journey. So that that's a heavy bike. Um, ah, oh, it must have been maybe thirty, or oh, maybe thirty-five kilos. Yeah, probably somewhere around thirty yeah. to forty kilos with all the food. Yeah, mid thirties, I think. Wow. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's like a hundred pounds at least. Yeah, pretty heavy. You get used to it really, real quick. <laughs> it feels really strange for half an hour. And then when you get back on an unloaded bike, you're like, oh, I can't keep this thing under control. <laughs> yeah, I bet. How, how, what kind of speeds were you averaging with those bikes? Well, so there was, there was a few days when we were just kind of pushing through fresh snow. So that must have been like a kilometer an hour. Yeah, that was pretty tough. It was pretty dire. Wow. But then when we got the better, so we would get overtaken by these skiers who were kind of looking at you and they were really polite, but you could see them thinking like, oh, there's poor idiots. <laughs> but then later on when, when we had better conditions, when there was, um, the snow had been compacted, we were, we were going faster than the skiers. So I think we can only think in kilometers, but kind of seven or eight kilometers an hour, uh, maybe like five miles an hour, mm-hmm. which was like appreciably faster than the skiers. So they were more consistent, but sometimes we got to, we got to go faster. And then you yeah. get overtaken by a, by a dog sled going twice as fast anyway. Wow. So how many, how many hours a day would you be actually moving versus, uh, you know, stopping for camping or, you know, making water or, or all that kind of stuff? We're probably moving time between six and eight hours a day, I think. On this trip, we were having to stop earlier because um, the camp to set up could take a couple of hours. Oh, wow. Digging out a platform and building a wall for the wind and things. But we had lots of daylight, so that was quite nice, not not worrying about that. Yeah, do you agree here? Yeah, something like that. You definitely had to budget more time for like melting snow for water and yeah, getting tent getting the tent set up in the evening was like hard work. So you didn't want to stop too late or when you were too tired. Yeah. Because that definitely yeah. needed some energy. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't crazy long. Like you can't you can't do crazy long days and have fun, <laughs> I think, in the winter. Right. When you don't need to. Definitely, we, there was a lot of time just at camp doing small jobs. So little things like eating and drinking and being warm took a long time, but they were kind of nice. You kind of got into a rhythm and it was kind of just, yeah, little familiar jobs to keep you busy. It was good. Yeah, cool. So I want to ask you, how do you dress for biking in extreme cold weather? Maybe not just for trips like this, but for regular people who are trying to get out more in the winter time. Is there like a crucial piece of winter clothing that you would suggest for people that are trying to stay comfortable when it's cold? I, for me, it's definitely looking after your hands and your feet, because uh, if you, yeah, if you lose your hands, then you can't do anything, and a situation can become dangerous very fast. So on the bike, having puggies makes an amazing difference, because yeah, you know that if your hands are in your puggies, they're going to warm up quite fast, and uh, it means you can get away with thinner gloves. If you do need to do something, you can hopefully just keep your gloves on and um, do whatever it is, and. Uh, yeah, feet. I definitely didn't have warm enough feet, which did towards the end become a bit more of an issue. And um, yeah, definitely, if you want to be happy and comfortable, hands and feet for me. Yeah. What would you do different for your feet? What do you think you could have done to keep them warmer? Oh, I could have. <laughs> yeah, I could have had much bigger boots. Don't trust temperature ratings on boots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had some, I had some big bathing boots that were that were really really good 
like sort of big um sort of big foam inner boots inside a kind of leather outer boot. So and I was a lot happier in the morning, so definitely feet and hands, yeah, I would agree. Yeah. But apart from that, it's yeah. crazy how little clothing you need. Like biking keeps you pretty warm. Most of the time it wasn't so much keeping warm as keeping dry, like trying to avoid getting any sweat. Yeah. Which I guess we're pretty used to because Scottish winter climate's pretty it's pretty damp. Like things get wet real quick. So you learn you learn really quickly the difference between dry clothes and wet clothes and the difference that makes. Yeah, I imagine regulating your temperature is difficult. You know, once you get moving on the bike, you're going to be getting warmed up. But then as soon as you stop to do something like fix your bike or make water or whatever, that you got to you gotta change up your outfit really quick and make sure you're not getting too hot or too cold. Yeah, you definitely, it's very easy to be lazy and just think, oh, I'll keep this layer on and then let yourself get sweaty. So you have to be quite sort of on it with um, what you're doing, taking layers on or taking them off to keep yourself at a good temperature. Yeah. So we kind of covered this, but I'm curious to know how you prepare for cold weather riding. I mean, are you guys naturally cold weather people or were you able to do some acclimation? Like if you had a choice, would you rather ride on like a really hot day or a really cold day? Well, I think if you're asking what the perfect day is, it's like a few degrees above freezing and nice and sunny and dry. I don't know. I think um, I wouldn't say I'm one or the other. I'm definitely not a hot weather person. Can't do that. <laughs> right. Because you can only take off so many clothes. That's my problem. It gets really hot here. Exactly. That's but you can always problem. put more clothes on. Really yeah. And some days, probably be better off just wearing nothing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, for me, I grew up in South Africa, so I'm definitely, I prefer hot weather. I do struggle with the cold, so I have to carry about twice as many clothes as he does to stay warm. Oh, wow. <laughs> but again, you just get used to it and... It's all part of the challenge. Yeah. I've heard that, that diet can play a role in that as well. You know, that people who live in these extreme latitudes, that they tend to eat a lot of fat during the winter season. Were you able to do that? Did that make a difference or, or have you heard that? Um, yeah, for sure. When we were planning our feed for this trip, we definitely put in a lot of fat into, especially our evening meals to try and stay warm overnight. Yeah, a lot more fat than we were used to eating. How does that look on the bike? What do you, what could you carry that has a lot of fat that's not... I guess things aren't going to spoil because it's freezing, but... Yeah, it's so cold, you don't have to worry about that. Our evening meals, we use instant mashed potato as like a base for things. And so we were adding then like a load of coconut oil into that. And we had all these sort of pre-bagged meals made up. Hmm. So yeah, we're coconut oil for yeah extra calories in our dinners. Yeah, and frozen peanut butter. <laughs> frozen peanut butter. Interesting. Harder to get out of the jar than you think. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah, you need an ice pick. Well, are you, I mean, you don't. You didn't mention any meat. Are you guys vegetarians? Um, I'm a vegetarian, yeah. Okay. So I guess if you eat meat, it becomes easier because, yeah, it's an easier way of getting quite high calories. Yeah, well, I mean, was that a, was that a challenge, do you think? Mm. I think we were, like, we did some kind of back of a paper napkin maths to work out calories and stuff and i think this was the first trip where we got it pretty nailed actually we got it pretty good didn't we um, yeah like we were never hungry but we didn't have loads of food left over hmm. i can't remember what the calories were though it was quite a lot but no we, we didn't really struggle for food i think like loads of nuts and seeds and coconut oil i think i might have taken some sausages and stuff i'm not vegetarian <laughs> um lots of cheese like it's yeah it was it was okay it was it was pretty good um it was a monotonous diet but it was it was good stuff i think yeah because food in yeah. Sweden and Norway is really expensive, so we kind of had to take most of our own food. 
it was stuff like um, I'm trying to think the equivalent of I've got to do my currency conversions. The equivalent of kind of seven or eight dollars for a loaf of bread. Oh wow! Stuff like that, yeah. Or even a bag of pasta would be the same, like seven or eight dollars. Um, so we took a lot of our own food, which was a pretty good idea, I think, because otherwise we'd have been we'd have been pretty broke afterwards. Yeah, well, you know, instant mashed potatoes with coconut oil. It doesn't it doesn't sound delicious to me right now, but I imagine oh, when you're <laughs> hungry, when you're out there, it's like it's like the best thing ever, right? Yeah, and once you've added a bit of, you know, Parmesan cheese and a cup of soup and some nuts and seeds to it. And then, when yeah, when you're hungry, you'll eat anything, <laughs> won't you? So it's just about getting the calories in. Yeah. So what are some of the, like, extra challenges that you faced involved with sleeping in the snow each night? That seems like that would be really different from camping out, like, in dry conditions. Yeah, it is. And there's some things that aren't so bad. And there's definitely been loads of learning that we've had to do but in kind of areas that you wouldn't necessarily expect. So getting a tent pitched on snow is really easy because if it's not flat, you just get the shovel out and make it flat. Um, and, you know, you can, you can dig into a slope, you can make a wall, and it's, it's pretty efficient stuff to build with. Like we had a snow saw and you can saw blocks if you need to. So that's pretty good. And getting a tent pitched is easy because we just use, um, you know, just snow pickets. So much, much broader, larger kind of tent pegs. Then they hold really, really good. Like once they're in, they are not coming out. Yeah. How deep was the snow? It depended. Some places were pretty scoured by the wind. So some places the ground was showing through and some places it would be meters and meters deep. It was quite varied. Wow. Like it was really similar to the snowpack in Scotland. It was really wind affected. So yeah, getting the tent up was really easy and kind of snow is a really good insulator. So, you know, the the tent would be a lot warmer than outside. Um, and with a thick enough sleeping mat, you know, the base of the tent was warm enough. Mm-hmm. The real interesting one's um, water vapor. So... We were finding when we've done winter camping in the in the past, for one night it's totally fine, it's really easy. After a couple of nights you start finding that your sleeping bag is wet in the morning. Oh. oh. And obviously we were like, Oh, this is a bit of a problem. And I guess people that are familiar with it will, will say it's really obvious, but it didn't really occur to us at the start that it's water vapour coming off your body, which it, it produces right. all the time whether you feel sweaty or not, um, would then travel like make its way through the sleeping bag. Um, and towards the outside world but rather than getting to the outside of the bag and evaporating it would freeze halfway because the the freezing point is kind of somewhere halfway in your sleeping bag Mm -hmm. yeah um so it would freeze in your sleeping bag and then in the morning you would wake up your body would warm up a little bit and then suddenly all those ice crystals are melting and now your sleeping bag's wet so that was that was pretty interesting um and we were getting the same with socks as well like wet socks that would just get wetter and wetter over the days so we've started using or what we've what we've sort of settled on is vapor liners um so just like a a completely waterproof barrier that you you get into in your sleeping bag so it feels really weird <laughs> but it, it stops any so you get a little bit clammy in there it's kind of like sleeping in a plastic bag yeah you get a little bit clammy um but then that water vapor is not getting into you into your insulation and it's really amazing in the morning to see how much water your body produces when you're sleeping like it's quite a lot yeah. Well, what do you do with that vapor barrier? Then you just like dump it out. Like It seems like that that's going to be wet. Let it freeze and then turn it inside out and all the ice crystals flake off. It was pretty easy to sort out. Um, but yeah, much better than having a wet sleeping bag. Um, and then the same with socks as well. So we put on a really thin sock and then a, a waterproof sock and then thick socks and then boots. And then it keeps all that sweaty foot sweat kind of next to your skin, but not into your boot. Um, and it all works pretty effectively. It's just not always the most comfortable. So that was that was really interesting, like little tiny things like the fact that your body 
produces water vapor suddenly becomes this really big problem and you dedicate loads of time towards just not getting wet socks yeah yeah weird you start really obsessing yeah. over it but then other things are, are fine you know getting a tent set up is, is pretty pretty simple once you get used to it it's just different yeah cool yeah it sounds like you you all knew a lot going into it but obviously you learn even more once you're out there and and you've experienced it yourself what would you say mentally was sort of the toughest part of the trip? Was there a low point or several low points that you experienced along the way? For me, well, we had, just after we started our kind of main 10-day exped, there was a load of fresh snow. So we'd been following this beautiful trail that had been put in by, you know, however many hundreds of skiers had been before us. And that got covered up by a foot of fresh powder, which was uh, pretty hard work in <laughs> pushing the bikes through. Actually, the worst bit for me was later on in our trip, we had a day where we'd kind of dropped a bit lower out of the hills and the temperature had warmed up quite a lot to just above freezing. So rather than everything staying frozen, Mm -hmm. any snow that did get into your boots was melting and so things got wet. And then that night it froze up really hard again, maybe down to minus 15, minus 20. And uh, then we were having to deal with stuff that got wet and frozen. So for me, my boots were frozen solid and I was trying to force my feet into them. And um, yeah, I really, really struggled actually just with the cold after that. So much so that we did eventually have to go into a hut because, uh, yeah, I was worried that my toes were actually getting a bit frost nipped. Yeah. Well, I mean, that that's definitely a dangerous situation. Yeah, you definitely have to look after your extremities so well. And um, yeah, I was aware that my feet just hadn't warmed up at all and were staying numb. And yeah, not a nice thought to think like, oh, I could actually do some damage here just right. just because of that. So that was that was pretty hard, just being that cold and sort of almost wanting to, yeah, just cry from the cold and be riding and riding and riding and not warming up. Yeah, was there ever any point where... Uh, you you just wish the trip was over, or th- or that you were like looking forward to it being over. I wouldn't have said that, but there was a point at the start where we were wondering if it was over already. Um, like Annie said, there was this there was a kind of dump of snow um, and quite windy conditions, and the trail, the navigation was easy enough, but it was it was just the fact that you were just pushing this really heavy bike through deep snow, and I think we ended up doing that for like a day and a half. So on that kind of night in the middle, you're in the tent thinking like, oh. You know, have we made an awful, awful mistake? Like, is this, are we just going to look like idiots? You know, when everyone said, oh, that sounds like a silly idea, were they right? And was it a silly idea? And, you know, you've put kind of so much effort and I guess sacrificed a lot of time and, and money, I suppose, comes into it a bit to, to get there. And then you maybe faced with this situation that's making you think, oh, was this just a stupid idea and should I have seen this coming? Um, I think that's that was a low point for me, for sure. And it, I think it happens like every time we do anything, there's always a point where you're like, oh, maybe we've been too ambitious here. Maybe there's a reason people generally don't do this. But then, you know, the next day the sun came out and, you know, like 24 hours later, it was all change and we were having a really good time. So I think you definitely learn to kind of persevere through the low points too. It's easier to remember that, you know, what goes down must kind of come back up again, I think. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Do you find that on these expeditions, that low point tends to come at sort of the similar times during the trip. I know for me personally doing like a long ride, you know, if it's a a 50 mile ride or hundred mile ride that the hardest part is often like that quarter quarter way point where it's like you haven't, you haven't gone very far, but, but it's, 
a good distance and you're thinking about how much farther you have to go? Like, do you think, do you think that's part of it? Is it timing or is it, I mean, it sounds like maybe in your case, it was more conditions based, but I'm just curious to know if, if other people experience that sort of time-based stress. Yeah, I definitely know what you mean. I think you start out in the first however long you're like super excited and everything's new and you're very, very positive and you're just sort of on the adrenaline of being somewhere and doing the thing. And then you get a little bit tired and that initial excitement wears off and you realize how much further you have to go in. <laughs> right. You maybe start to realize the enormity of the task you've set yourself. And uh, yeah, no, I definitely know what you mean with that. Like you, you do have that come down where you have to just then start getting on with it and, and covering the miles. Yeah. Cause, cause once you hit half, once you're 50%, then you can tell yourself, well, I'm more than halfway or yeah. whatever. I, I tend to think in percentages and, and maybe it's wrong too. I don't know if you guys have mental tricks, but for me, yeah, I'm always looking at the finish and for, especially for like a 10 day stretch like this, the finish is a long way away. I mean, do you break it up into smaller increments and just sort of not think about the finish, but think about like the next day or, you know, maybe two days ahead? Uh, it's kind of funny because I totally know what you mean, but more from kind of racing side of things or mm -hmm. like maybe a race, but also just a, a challenging ride that you've decided to do kind of almost racing yourself as it were. So yeah, like the whole quarter thing definitely sounds familiar and you start kind of getting yourself down and you're like, oh, I'm only a quarter of the way through and this is hard. And then you get over the halfway hump and it all, yeah, those kind of m amazing kind of mental transformations where you can trick yourself into being you know low or high. They're, they're super familiar, but I, I wouldn't have said any of that rings a bell from going on longer trips, actually. I think, huh. I think partly because there isn't, there isn't a finish line. Like there isn't, um, there isn't a set goal necessarily. It's the, the goal is just to be there and in, you know, enjoying a place, enjoying a landscape. So if we decide we want to try and do this hundred mile route and you only do 80 or you have to do something completely different, but you still, end up enjoying and seeing the landscape then it, it kind of makes no difference there's yeah now you mention it there's a real big difference mentally i think between just a trip where the aim is to have a look around and, and experience a place and a sort of goal-based challenge or race yeah yeah i don't know if annie agrees but I, I don't ever recall thinking about kind of a finish line it's more if there's like an obstacle to be overcome it's oh will we get back before food runs out or will the conditions <laughs> be okay but there's never kind of like oh i've got to get to the Got to get to the finish. Yeah, they're really, they're really, really different mindsets. I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's enlightening to me, anyway. To, that you would, you would see it more as like a vacation, right? Like you're going somewhere, you know, you're going to be there for a week, and so really, your goal is just to be there for a week. And and it sounds like you guys are really reasonable about your expectations and being smart and safe too to just say like. We're not trying to get to any particular point necessarily by the end of this. We're going to take it as it comes and we're just going to experience it and enjoy the time that we're here. Yeah, I mean, we always go with a variety of plans and we always hope the most ambitious one will pay off. But we've also learned that you can do all the research in the world, but there's still going to be stuff that you don't know. You could still get hit by bad weather. You could still have equipment failure. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess we we always go to be really adaptable. And as he said, if 
you know, for this Lapland trip, we did manage to do an amazing route. But our first aim was to be there and to be able to exist in that landscape and look after ourselves and learn about the cold. Mm -hmm. And so even if that route hadn't worked, but we'd achieved those other things, we would still have had an amazing time. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I guess that is different to completing a, a race route or completing a big a big ride that you've set yourself. Well, so in the end, what made the trip most worthwhile for each of you? What was it sort of the highlight? I think like the the highlight for me, I think, so we had our kind of plan A, which was to get from a a village called Abisko, um, which is at kind of one end of a really famous section of a long distance winter winter sort of skiing trail and summer hiking trail called Kungsleden. Um, and plan A was kind of to get down a section of Kungsleden um, to another village called Nikolokta. And we did that and there was, you know, there was challenges along the way. And then suddenly we found ourselves with like continuing good weather and we'd learned enough that we're like, ha, huh, rather than ride out to the nearest town and get the train back to the start, let's try and ride back to the start a different way. And we ended up going up this valley that was much, much quieter and, you know, it was sunny and it was cold, like nice and dry and cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were in the trees and we saw some moose, um, you know, like a much, much quieter place. And I think that was a highlight for me. I think that made the trip worthwhile because it was a day where we, I think we felt really comfortable. We knew that we'd be comfortable that night. We knew kind of how things were going to work. And I guess we'd, uh, we'd satisfied ourselves that we, we were, we'd learned enough to kind of just enjoy being there. That was it. The, the, the winter in itself didn't feel like a challenge. The winter felt like a, a reason to be there kind of thing. You know, we were riding on frozen rivers and lakes and you, you can't really get up that valley in the summer without a lot of hard work. Whereas in the winter, it's just a, just a really beautiful place to be. So I think, I guess we kind of fulfilled our original aim, really. It wasn't to do a set route. We ended up doing more than we hoped we might be able to, but just, just being able to be outside in winter and say, yeah, this is, this is just a nice place to be. And it, it stopped, stopped feeling like something you had to fight against yeah. and rather something you yeah. could take advantage of. That was, that was what made it worthwhile for me, at least. Yeah, um, for me, one of the really unexpected things was the sort of mentality of the Swedish people we met, or not just the Swedish people, but the other folk that we saw out there. So we met a lot of skiers, we met um, hut guardians, and just the attitude difference there to what we experience often in the UK was huge. Like People there were so positive and encouraging, and we got to a hut after you know a day of pushing, and we were saying to the hot guardian, like, oh, you know, we might think about turning back here. And she was like, well, if you don't try, you're not going to find out if you can do it or not. <laughs> Whereas in the UK, so we would have been threatened with them calling out man rescue and we were being stupid and selfish for being there and, and doing that. And also, for me, it was amazing to see how many women were out there doing stuff, just either on their own or with their friends. And again, in the UK, it's something which is seen as quite a negative thing and I'll often get asked if I'm in the hills on my own like you know don't you think you should be here with with your boyfriend like do you not think you're being unsafe being here as a woman alone and so yeah totally unexpectedly I just really enjoyed the attitude of the other people that we met and that became such a huge positive thing it was just so cool to see that and see that difference yeah that's great to hear 
So, and you guys did a write-up for discoverinteresting.com about the Lapland trip. And in that, you said, when we challenge ourselves, we learn about ourselves. So do you think you'll ever get to a point where you finally know yourself? Or is this going to be like a never-ending quest for bigger and bigger challenges, do you think? I guess, yeah, I suppose um, when you reflect on it, it, it's really easy to see the similarities between the work that we do um, and going on trips like this. I suppose... For for us, the, um, yeah, you have to set yourself a new challenge or just push yourself in some way, shape, or form because that is it's the only way to learn. In the same way that we're you know stood at the top of an abseil that we've done hundreds of times before, saying to a kid like, "Oh, you know, you, there's there's a lot to be learned by trying this. There's kind of mm-hmm. nothing to lose." Um, but also similarly to what what we were saying about the reason that we go places like this in the first place, it's not to cross a finish line or kind of tick a box or achieve a first or something. The 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 kind of the goal is just the being there so i guess rather than saying that kind of ever increasing challenge is leading to a finish line there's definitely no finish line i think the the whole point is the process hmm. rather than rather than the end kind of the end of the line so it's yeah not really something that i've ever ever thought about i suppose you just you think to yourself oh well that went okay <laughs> i wonder if that means that we could do that or i wonder if that means you know as your mindset changes you just naturally look for something different i don't think it it takes any kind of conscious thought to think oh we need to find something harder and harder and harder just as you confidence and experience increases the things that snag your attention will just start being different i suppose or you might go off in like an entirely different tangent altogether like we've met quite a lot of really awesome bikers who started out as climbers and just for whatever reason their life change direction a bit and they thought oh biking looks good and they tried that and then it's taken them taken them totally different places so yeah i know it's a big old world you're never going to run out of things to do or things to be interested in i think yeah yeah it's definitely it's more about a curiosity for us and you're always gonna come across something new that makes you wonder like you know oh i wonder what that place is like or that looks amazing i want to go there and so it's definitely as he said it's not about a finish line it's about seeing these places and and there's always going to be something else that you get excited about and that you want to go and try and then you just have to find out what you need to learn to be able to do it safely yeah that's that's a great way to look at it and it's i mean it's tough because people who are doing similar things to what you did with your trip in lapland i guess we all have different motivations and for some people it is about just what is the next biggest challenge never being satisfied that that they're up for every challenge, right? Like always trying to prove something to themselves or to other people. And it sounds like for you, instead, it's more about uh, just experiencing new things and, and trying new things. Yeah, I think so. I mean, definitely he's quite competitive, but not not in a kind of, sh- not a show-off way, but not as in he wants to be better than other people. Just it's about seeing what you can do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different type of attitude, I suppose. It's not about, yeah, being as tough or as gnarly as you can, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Like, I love a good race, but it's, I find it quite easy to put it down as well. Like, it's um, an easy hat to take off. Mm-hmm. If, you, you know, if you're on a trip, then there's nothing or no one to race. So it's, it's really nice to tap into kind of different motivations and find, find that, you know, there are other things that kind of drive you. Like it's real nice to be competitive sometimes, but it's it's real nice to be able to turn away from that too. Definitely variety is, is a big thing for, for me or I guess for both of us. Yeah. 
Do you, do you have a hard time turning that competitive nature off? Like, do you, do you go into these trips and start finding yourself getting into that mode where you're like, I want to, I want to go faster or I want to try to do this or that, or can you, can you compartmentalize that pretty easily? No. Yeah. I really, no, it doesn't, it's not ever something that kind of floats across my mind. I think it's more like, yeah, if you put yourself in a setting where that's just not going to, that's not going to be the way your mind is. You know, if you put yourself between some race tape with a load of other people that are warming up, then you, it's really easy to switch over and be like, okay, it's time to, mm-hmm. time to go racing and time to ride hard. But if you put yourself somewhere where you just, you don't really care where you end up that night because everywhere is so nice, then it's, it just never really floats across your brain. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, just tapping into a different side of yourself, I think. Yeah. So what, in all your travels, what's sort of the best place that you've ridden mountain bikes? Annie will definitely tell you that I love to grumble about the weather in the UK. <laughs> but that said, Scotland on a good day, Scotland on a good day is, is the best, I think. And I think possibly because we've been lucky enough to do so much riding here that we've seen different places in different moods on different days, different times of the year. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can go ride somewhere and have a, you know, a really lovely day, but you're also you're kind of riding it in your head that time three years ago <laughs> when you rode it at night or that time when you rode it in the rain and had an epic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think Scotland on a good day kind of is, is pretty hard to beat. But Do you have a favorite ride center or a trail center there in Scotland? Well, we were riding, there's an area of mountains kind of in the central highlands called the Kengorms. Um, we were riding there this week, actually. We got some really, really lovely winter conditions where just kind of a little bit of snow and nice and cold and dry and sunny. Um, so I think the Kengorms are pretty hard to beat, maybe just because they're more familiar. But if, if it's anything, then Scotland's really varied. So I worked for quite a few years guiding um, kind of all over Scotland, sort of doing various bits of mountain bike guiding, which is nice because you get to see different places again and again. Um, yeah, the Cairngorms is a, is a pretty special corner to go back to, given that um, we've both spent time living there. Yeah, I mean, we've both been super lucky in that we have travelled a lot and been able to ride our bikes in some really awesome places. And I think definitely when you're there and you're in the moment, wherever you are is probably the best place you've ever been with your bike at that time. <laughs> yeah. And it is really hard to choose. So I think it's also quite unfair to choose because everything's so different. And, you know, like Lablin, the snow is amazing and it was beautiful riding on it. And yeah, Scotland's got this kind of weird, awkward, boggy, rocky technicalness, which is also incredible. And then... Yeah, you know, like Greenland, we were riding up this huge empty valley where no one's taken a bike before, and that was super cool as well. So, yeah, I think it's it's really hard to choose, and I suppose it is, as he said, it's nice to to have somewhere closer to home that you just love going, and you just. For me, there's one particular glen in Scotland, which it's a lot um, a lot wilder than the rest. It's a lot more forested. And uh, just to go and ride up there and just sit and look around and enjoy the forest. That for me is a pretty special place. Yeah. And I'll just go, yeah. go there if I need a bit of peace and quiet in my sort of day-to-day life. Yeah. So that said, going riding, you know, riding in the French Alps, every half an hour you go through a village with a bakery and you can get a can of Coke. So it depends how the mood takes you really, doesn't mm-hmm. it? If you want something, big wild spaces or cheese and a can of Coke. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it depends what day you ask me on for what's my favorite. Yeah, that's nice. You can kind of float between the two. So I imagine you guys will answer this differently, but but do you like going back and revisiting sort of your favorite riding spots or do you prefer to head into unknown and, and new stuff? Is that more attractive for you? Mm, I think I'd just answer yes. <laughs> like both. both, yeah. Um, it's real nice to, to kind of build a relationship with a place. 
you know you end up feeling strongly connected to somewhere and you you do that through experiences you know like I say you're riding there in on a really lovely summer's day but you're thinking back to the time that you rode there in winter and it was dark and it was raining and you were wet and it was horrible but it, it still becomes part of your relationship with it but that said the kind of curiosity that leads you somewhere new for the first time is such a kind of driving force for so many people I think that that that's hard to beat as well like then there's not a kind of order of priority. They're kind of different ends of the same thing, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Like, definitely for us, we really like to have a trip that we're planning for that's something totally outside what we know and someone, somewhere totally different. That's like a huge thing to look forward to. But just in day-to-day, I mean, you've got to love where you are, don't you? Otherwise, you wouldn't go ride your bike. So, yeah, yeah being able to just go out and ride the same trail that you've ridden a hundred times before but still really enjoy it is yeah it's super important just for for your day-to-day mental health as much as anything else isn't it yeah so before we wrap up i wanted to ask for your advice for people who are interested in maybe challenging themselves or riding somewhere new on the bike this year how would you how would you encourage them or what would you tell them is sort of the best way to take a step toward that goal I don't know. I think the first step is in the question, really. Like if someone's interested in challenging themselves, then they've they kind of they got the curiosity and they're kind of halfway there or maybe more than halfway. Mm-hmm. But I guess my advice would be, you know, if someone's saying, oh, I want to challenge myself then maybe they've got a challenge in mind and that challenge must be something that they're not sure that they can do. Otherwise, they wouldn't call it a challenge. You know, same mm-hmm. as the word adventure. If, if you're sure that it's going to be fine, then it's not really an adventure, is it? So if they're challenged, if they're, you know, if they found a challenge, they want to challenge themselves and they're looking at it thinking, oh yeah, that looks, that looks cool for whatever reason and whatever it is, but it clicks with them and they're thinking, I'm not sure I can do it. I guess the answer is I bet you can, do you know, like those, you know, maybe they, they're looking up to someone inspirational, you know, someone that's ridden around the world and they're thinking, oh, well, you know, they can do that, but I could never do that. But the, the person that they're looking up to still got two legs and two eyes and a brain and everything else that, that they have. And it's so much of it is in your head that I think, yeah, the answer is always, I bet you can do it. It's just along the way you might find it's a bit harder than you thought at first. But yeah, there's definitely some folks that we really look up to. We've got a friend here in Scotland called Jenny Graham who rode around the world this year and she broke the women's round the world record and she did it self-supported. And I think she's she's a pretty awesome role model for us because if there's... When she set off, if there was ever anyone that was going to at least get around the world without stopping, no matter what time it took to do it, it was always going to be her. And she's definitely a, a kind of, oh, I bet I can person. Mm-hmm. So that's the, yeah, there's all, all kind of technical things and specific things. But I think the only one big overarching thing is, you know, if you found the thing that hooks your imagination and you actually commit yourself to it, then I bet you can. Right. Yeah. And I guess, well, yeah, I agree with that. I think... The hardest thing is always getting yourself to actually start is getting yourself out the door, whether it's to go for an hour's run or setting out for your first marathon. And there's always going to be people saying negatives or people who say, oh, well, you can't do that or that's too dangerous or, you know, why are you bothering? Why are you doing that? And the hardest part is ignoring them and ignoring the doubts in your own head and getting yourself out there. And it might work straight away. You might succeed the first time you try it. Or you might find you have a bit of learning to do or a bit of getting a bit fitter or stronger first. So not getting disheartened if it does turn out that it's a lot harder than you thought, but it's 
working out what you need to do in order to be able to succeed the next time you try or the time after that. But getting yourself there, getting out the door in in the first place, that, I think, is the most important. And once you've got out there, it's always going to, you're always going to get something good from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I imagine for, for both of you, there are all these challenges and, and different trips that look interesting to you. How do you decide like, which is the one that you're going to go for and how, and how do you like commit yourself to that one when you've got all these sort of competing challenges or adventures in mind? Well, I don't know. Like sometimes it's just seasons. So you know, working outside in January, there's not much work for us, but a lot of work will be in, in our summer. So if there's somewhere that you're thinking, oh, I really want to go there and it's it's in, you know, the good time to go would be November, December, then yeah, maybe we're thinking, oh, okay, that's going to fit really well with how a year looks for us. And there's there's a, oh, there's a big long list of places we'd like to go, but you kind of need to go in August. So it's it's tricky sometimes. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Just sort of natural selection of ideas happens and one starts looking like it makes sense. That's a bit more practical than I thought you would say. <laughs> I thought it would <laughs> yeah. be something about like, you know, you've got to, you got to like really feel it like tugging at you or, or it's something that you really, really want. But, but for most of us, that's, that's not the reality. I mean, most of us can't just follow our, our heart and, and do these things. You know, there is some practicality that comes involved that says, well, you know, when can I get time off of work or, or when's like the, when's the plane ticket going to be cheap, you know? Yeah, that's definitely like cost is always a huge consideration, isn't it? And I mean, there's places we'd love to go that we probably never going to be able to afford to. So yeah, we do a lot of um, also Googling the cost of flights and uh, basing our choices around that. But that's the thing, like the world is so big and there's so many amazing places once you dig a little deeper and start to research any country, you're going to find something that is quite exciting or really interesting about it. And uh, yeah, I think you just have to have to have a look around and see what actually is going to work for you. Yeah. And then focus in on that a bit more. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, what you were saying about um, kind of follow your heart. I guess at, at the end of the day, it comes down to quite a pragmatic decision because... I suppose, yeah, we're really, really lucky that we can we can drop everything and say, oh, yeah, we've decided that month we're going to go there and do that thing. And it's because, I guess, we've. it sounds really cheesy, but we have kind of followed what inspires us. Like, we've, you know, I guess we've made kind of sacrifices, you know, like we live in a van, um, can't really practically live in a house. And we, we sort of take work freelance, which has its pros and its cons. You know, it can be pretty... Um, inconsistent it can be pretty kind of um, flaky from time to time but we've we've ended up deciding that what what really not just inspires us when you happen to be in the mood for going for a bike ride but what kind of inspires us to get out of bed in the morning every day um and sort of base a life around is yeah that just that curiosity just there are things i want to go and see um and go and see on our own terms and bikes it seems are the best way to go and see things on your own terms and not be not be too reliant on a kind of curated tourist experience bikes are bikes are definitely that tool for going and just having a look at stuff that seems interesting so i suppose the kind of following your heart bit happened a while ago when we decided not to not to get real jobs and to yeah to sort of to plan plan a year around hey what what really sort of tickles you at the minute what what should we go and see what looks interesting to go explore yeah 
Well, I know that your story is very inspiring to a lot of people, and it's really cool to see what you're doing and, and to hear about all the things that you've learned along the way. So thank you both for joining us. No oh, worries. It's nice been lovely to chatting to you. So thank you. Great. Well, you can read the full story about Hugh and Annie's Lapland trip and see photos at discoverinteresting.com. And you can follow both Hugh and Annie on Instagram. Hugh is at topofests and Annie is at underscore girl underscore outside. And if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, we'd love to have you recommend it to a friend. You can also access the podcast on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Single Tracks mountain bike podcast. That's all we have this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.